Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to hear your word proclaimed, we pray that you would remove every distraction, that you would grant us sharp minds, a heart open and ready to receive and understand your word. Help us not only to receive the word, but to respond rightly with faith and obedience. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. please open your Bibles now to our sermon text, continuing our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians, looking this morning at chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, page 985 in the Pew Bibles. So Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Every one of you who is here this morning is here because someone told you the good news of Jesus Christ. Perhaps you heard the gospel from a family member growing up in the faith, or perhaps it was a friend or a co-worker who first spoke to you about Christ. Maybe all they did was invite you to church, and you heard about Christ primarily in a church setting like this one. It's less common, but some actually come to Christ not through a personal relationship, but simply by reading a book reading something online. But even reading, that is someone telling you through the written word, even if the person who wrote those words is someone who has no longer living. One way or another, someone told you about Jesus Christ. And now that you've heard it, it is now your duty, and really, truly, it is your privilege to tell others the wonderful good news that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That he is the one who came and lived the perfect life. He is the one who died in your place. He died on the cross to save you from the wrath of God that you deserve for the sins that you have committed. And he has died so that you might have eternal life. This is the good news. The promise that Jesus Christ has made for all who trust in him. As we've worked our way through the second half of Paul's letters to the Colossians, we've seen that he's been intensely practical, showing what it has looked like to live the new life that you now have through union with him if you've put your faith in him. Chapter 3 began by first applying this to your personal life, setting your mind on the things above, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, putting on Jesus Christ. And then Paul applies it to your relationships 
first in the church, then in your home and family life, and then last time we saw it applied to your work life. Now this morning turns to the question of relationships outside the church, relationship with with non-believers. How do you live this new life you have in Christ among those who do not know him? How do we get this good news out? Just as Christ commissioned his disciples to go out, make and make disciples of all the nations. And as you may notice, we're coming to the end of the letter. This is the very last topic Paul gets to before his final greetings. But he can't close the letter without covering this crucial topic of evangelism. He says, I got to get this in there. I can't end the letter before I talk about this. And as a church, we cannot forget our calling to be salt and light, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. And so let's consider our passage in two parts this morning. First, the call to pray for the spread of the gospel, verses two through four. And then second, to participate in the spread of the gospel, verses five and six. So first, let's see how you're called to pray for the spread of the gospel. And this is where evangelism always begins, on your knees with prayer. One preacher cleverly summarized this passage as first speaking to God about people and then speaking to people about God. Now, Paul already set the example in the way he opened the letter by telling the Colossians of his prayers, thanking God for them, for the way the gospel was working in their midst, bearing fruit and multiplying among them and through them. And then he prayed for their spiritual growth. But now he says to the Colossians, I've prayed for you, now you pray and pray for me. Of course, this applies for all of you gathered here this morning. This is a call to you to pray. And you'll see there's two parts to this first section. First, a general exhortation to be steadfast in prayer. And then a specific request. Paul says, pray for me. Pray for gospel proclamation. But first, be steadfast in prayer. Verse 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now here you're called to devote yourself to prayer. Pray habitually. Be faithful in prayer. Pray with persistence. Jesus taught us this in his parable of the persistent widow. To pray always and not to lose heart. Luke 18.1 You probably also know Paul's exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. And so prayer isn't just an occasional thing whenever God happens to come to your mind. Or you just pray when you're in great need. The so-called foxhole prayer. Prayer should be regular, constant, faithful, persistent. To mention again Paul's example at the beginning of the letter, he says how he always thanks God for the Colossians. How he never ceases to pray for them. And this is exactly what we see in the example we have in Acts of the early church. The vibrancy and explosive growth was intimately connected to their dependence on God expressed through their devotion to prayer. And so the church in Jerusalem, immediately after Pentecost, is described in this way in Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And all throughout the 
the book of Acts. This is what we constantly see, the church gathering for prayer again and again. And this prayer, it fuels the mission and the growth of the church as it spreads through the nations. And Paul describes, what does this prayer look like? In the second half of this verse, he says, first, you are to be watchful in prayer. This echoes the command that Jesus gave to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, Mark 1438. Now, what does this mean? To be watchful, it means you are awake and alert, aware of what is going on around you, alert to circumstances and needs that require prayer, because you know that you need God's help. And this could be your own needs and struggles. It could be the needs and struggles of others. And of course, if you're spiritually alert, awake, watchful, you'll be tuned in not just to physical needs, but especially spiritual needs. And the greatest spiritual need of all is for those who do not know Christ. They need the gospel. They need new hearts. They need new life. They need the faith that can only come as a gift from God by a transformative work of the Spirit. So you need to be alert and especially to pray for those who don't know Christ. Now, Jesus spoke of keeping watch to not enter into temptation. And this was especially needed for these Colossians. They were defending themselves against the false teachers, as we saw earlier in the letter. But so, too, for you, your constant, you need to use prayer to draw near to God, to depend on him for help against temptation. Now, along with this watching, your constant prayer must also be marked with thanksgiving. This theme of thanksgiving, it's been woven all throughout this letter from Paul's opening jubilant thanksgiving for the Colossians to various encouragements to give thanks scattered throughout the letter to what we saw recently, the concentrated threefold exhortation to give thanks, which we saw in chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. If you think about it, what you give thanks for will reflect what you value most. And believers, we never have an excuse to not give thanks to the Lord because we have received an eternal salvation, which is all of grace, and we can always give thanks for this. The more you give thanks for this, the more you will want to tell others about it. But beyond this, every good gift that we have comes from the Lord, and then the more we walk in the Lord, the more faithfully you pray, the more you will keep receiving more answered prayers, more reasons for gratitude. And so giving thanks will more and more mark your prayers. Now, of course, prayer should be a part of your everyday life as a believer. But as Paul here, he's writing to a church, he's especially encouraging corporate prayer. We needed to be devoted to pray together if we are to even survive as a church, but especially if we want to thrive as a church. Now this here begins as a general call to pray, but then Paul focuses in on a more specific request to pray for gospel proclamation in verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. 
it is striking just how often Paul asks for prayer from those he writes to in almost all his letters. He has a profound sense of just how dependent he is on the Lord for help and how much he needs others to be praying for him, interceding with the Lord on his behalf. But consider, he is the apostle. He is the one writing with authority to instruct, to encourage, to build up these churches. And to be honest, you think about it, he is perhaps the greatest missionary, perhaps the best Christian in all of history. And yet, he makes it clear that he is dependent on others for prayer for his ministry. If he needs prayer to proclaim the gospel, how much more do you and I? Every member of the body needs the others. There is no part that is so strong on its own that it can be independent and self-sufficient. And one of the most surprising examples of this is Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, the church that was so desperately in need of his stinging rebuke. And even so, Paul is not ashamed to ask even them for prayer. As he writes, you also must help us by prayer, 2 Corinthians 1.11. And so we need each other's prayers. Brothers and sisters, are you praying for one another? Not just on Sundays, but faithfully throughout the week. And specifically praying on this theme for the witness and the growth of the church. Let's look at the details of Paul's request. He notes here his circumstances. He's in prison because of his proclamation of the gospel. And yet he has no intention of slowing down or stopping. In fact, it's clear that he asked for prayer that the Lord would help him to go on doing the very thing that has landed him in prison. The second striking thing is that he does not ask for prayer for his release. He asks for an open door, but not that the Lord would open the doors of his jail cell, but rather he says, pray for us for an open door for the word. This open door, it's a common metaphor, asking that, that the Lord would provide opportunities and implied here is that they would be successful opportunities. A similar metaphor is that the Lord would pave the pathway ahead, that he would make the way level and straight, removing obstacles for Paul's evangelism to go forward. Of course, it's possible that one way the Lord would open the door for the word would be to have Paul released from prison. But Paul seems well aware that the Lord is not limited to working only outside of prison. He can use Paul mightily to spread the gospel from even inside his cell. And so Paul's first priority is not that God would change his circumstances, but rather that God would open up opportunities within his circumstances for the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go forth. Now, how did God answer this prayer? In his imprisonment in Rome, Paul was under house arrest, and 24-7, he was chained to one of Caesar's personal soldiers. What an opportunity this presented for Paul to speak to these Roman guards who then would rotate off to other duties 
And they shared this message with others. And so we read in his letter to the Philippians, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, Philippians 1, 12 through 13. And then even more telling is this greeting at the end of Philippians 4, 22. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Not only did the imperial guard know his imprisonment was for Christ, but clearly several members of Caesar's household Those who were serving as Paul's jailers had come to know the Lord. They were included among the saints. The closing verses of the book of Acts describe Paul's imprisonment in Rome in this amazing way. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Acts 28, 30, and 31. If you didn't know those were, those were uh, you didn't know the context of those verses, you wouldn't realize that's talking about him in prison. Clearly, God answered this prayer and opened the door for Paul to proclaim the mystery of Christ. As he would later write to Timothy in his final letter, this is in a later imprisonment. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, the word of God is not bound. The Romans could bind Paul in chains. They could shut him up in prison, but they could not keep the gospel from powerfully going forth. They could not keep God's kingdom from advancing. Now, the way Paul handles these various imprisonments, it contains a profound lesson for all of us. Because I know for me, most likely for all of you, when I face difficult circumstances, the first instinct is to pray, Lord, deliver me from this trial. Change my circumstances. But Paul here instead says, Lord, Use me as your instrument in the circumstances you have placed me. I don't know how many times I've heard the testimony. I recently heard it from a brother who said, I certainly would not wish cancer on anyone. But the Lord gave me so many opportunities to witness to the doctors, to witness to the nurses, to witness to all who cared for me. The Lord has used this terrible trial to advance his glory. Last week, we spoke about being stuck in a job that you deeply disliked. But maybe the Lord has placed you there to be his witness in this terrible circumstance that you want anything to get out of. Now, I'm not saying here that it's wrong to pray to God to change your circumstances. In prayer, we, we pour out our hearts to God. But also consider and pray that he might use you wherever you are. Here, I also want to point out in verse 4 how Paul emphasizes what his duty is. He says, what I ought to do, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul had no power. You have no power. I have no power to convert a sinner, to change a hard heart into a soft heart. And our duty is to clearly present the gospel. 
And that's what Paul asked prayer for. That's what he strived always to do. Clarity so that others would understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he promised to all who trust in him. As then it's up to the Holy Spirit to do the work only he can do. Only the Holy Spirit can change the heart, can grant the new birth. As Paul asked for prayer here, the direct application for you today is to pray for your pastor. Pray for ministers. Pray for me. Pray for Pastor Ron. That we might speak clearly. That we might clearly declare this word, this gospel. But then expanding from there, this morning you'll see in your bulletin, we have the home news, uh, the home uh, missionaries that are planting churches. You'll see also the telenews, updates from the missionaries that we support. Pray for them as they are proclaiming the gospel, both here in the United States and around the world. Pray for those who are proclaiming the gospel, but don't stop there. Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Pray for the Lord to raise up more men who would serve in the ministry. But don't stop there. Because it's not just those who are working full-time, who share the gospel. We are all called to be witnesses. And of course, that's where we're headed in part two. And so pray that the Lord would give you opportunities, that he would open up doors for you to speak of Christ. And so that brings us to our second part, how you are called to participate in the spread of the gospel, verses five and six. Now these two verses consider first your conduct and then your speech. But note the end result at the end of verse 6, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The goal of all of this is to live and speak in such a way that others are asking you about Christ and you are graciously responding with the gospel. Let's read first verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Now here, Paul, he's transitioning from what he just wrote about how he is proclaiming the gospel and asking prayer concerning that. Transitioning from that to a basic instruction to the Colossians about their evangelism. In other words, he's starting out here with Evangelism 101. And we all need to start out with Evangelism 101. He says this is about how to speak to outsiders, how to live before outsiders. Outsiders are those outside the church. It was a way of speaking of non-believers. And how do you begin to engage those who don't know Jesus Christ? Paul says you need to walk in wisdom before them. And we've seen this idiom of walking before. It's simply speaking of your lifestyle. What do they see when they look at your behavior? Paul says they ought to see wisdom. This is knowledge in action. It is skill for living. And this has been a major theme of the letter. This is the sixth time Paul has used it. Now, just to note two examples of those six. In chapter 1, verse 9, he prayed that the Colossians would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him. Then in chapter 2, verse 3, he said that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom 
and knowledge. And so it's ultimately in Christ that you find this wisdom. All this to say that non-believers need to see in the way that you live your life, the difference that it makes that you have died and been raised with Christ, that you have put off the old man and clothed yourself with the new. They need to see all the change that makes, what we've been talking about in chapter 3, the compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, and all summed up in love that should characterize you as a believer in Jesus Christ. You probably know the famous quotation popularly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which says, preach the gospel always and if necessary, use words. And the common critique of this quote is that you will need to use words. And Paul gets to that in the next verse. Of course you need to use words to tell people about Jesus Christ. But we see here that the importance of your actions in laying the foundation, you do need to walk wisely. As Christ said, they will know you by your love one for another. And so as you walk around outsiders, walking in wisdom, showing them what it looks like to live as a Christian, this will lead to questions. And then you have the opportunity to respond. And then Paul goes on, the second half of the verse, he says, making the best use of the time, or it could be translated, redeeming the time, buying up all the time that is available so that you can use it in the Lord's service. And the idea here is that you are eager to use every opportunity, every moment well in the service of Christ and the gospel. And just to illustrate this, parents who have grown children, I'm sure you know this well, I've been told it, but I'm barely beginning to get a sense, but older parents, they often tell me, treasure the time when your children are young. Make the most of it. It goes by too fast and before you know it, they're grown and you'll never have that time again. Now that's true concerning children, but how much more so for the opportunities that come your way to speak to family members, to speak to your coworkers, your friends, even acquaintances that you might only have a chance to speak to once. There is no more important conversation you can have than to tell someone about Jesus Christ. A conversation with eternal import, eternal impact. The opportunities come, but you need to take advantage of them and not let them fly by. Redeeming the time also has a sense here in which you don't know how much time you have left. We are all watching and waiting ultimately for Christ's return. And we don't know when that time will come. And so we must make the most of the time. Then Paul continues in verse 6, Let your speech be always gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And here Paul tells us that all of your speech should be characterized by grace. And we saw the opposite of this in James chapter 3, the great danger, the great destruction presented by a tongue that is out of control. And a grace, of course, the great challenge of bringing the tongue under control. But we saw in Colossians 3, 
that you are called to put off the sins of the tongue, slander, obscenity, lies, and that you are equipped to do this because you have put off the old man and are putting on, and you have put on, the new man, Jesus Christ. Now, parallel to this verse is Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, what is this talk of grace? Grace, most often as it's used in the New Testament, it refers to the grace of God, in which he shows us not only unmerited favor, the, the favor that we don't deserve, but actually favor to those of us who deserve the exact opposite, favor when we deserve his wrath. And so Paul is saying here, be kind, be gracious to others with your words. Along with this, Paul says, your speech is to be seasoned with salt. Now you're probably familiar with this metaphor of saltiness from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. There, his command to be salt, it goes along with being light, being the light of the world. And the idea is that salt is a preservative in a world that is corrupt and rotting away, and that Christians are to be a witness in the world that point people to the Father above. And what exactly does it mean to have salty speech? Not just to be salt, to be salty in your speeching. Now, in this context, it's certainly different from what the world means when they say salty language, which you may know refers to obscene language. This is not that. Salty speech, for the Christian, it means flavorful and compelling, filled with the savor of the gospel. And just to give an example, there are ways of sharing the gospel that turn people off, simply because you're you're, you're sharing the gospel, presenting it in an unsavory way. Now we recognize that Paul says that the gospel, it is a stumbling block to the Jews. It is foolishness to the Greeks. The gospel is ultimately offensive to many if the Lord is not working in their heart. But there's a difference between people being offended by the gospel itself and being offended by the way you present the gospel. You do ultimately need to tell people both the bad news and the good news. But if you begin by telling people, turn or burn, if you begin by saying, God hates this class of sinners, proceeding against a particular class of sinners, you are going to turn people off. There's also some Christians who love apologetics. They love arguments. They're very intellectual, but it's possible to be too argumentative, too intellectual. When what people need to see, going back to verse 5, they need to see your love, that you love them with the love of Christ. Of course, there's much more that could be said here about how we do this all with wisdom, how we do this with grace, how we speak with this salty speech. But we see here how it all leads to this end result, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person or better really said here, how you ought to respond to each person. Because Paul isn't saying here, you're always going to have all the answers. But he's saying you need, you're going to be able to respond. Of course, it's good to be repaired. It's good when someone asks you a question and you have a good answer. 
But sometimes your response may be, I'm not sure, but I'll get back to you. And a humble response, even if it's inconclusive, is far better than one that is proud and know-it-all and yet incorrect and untrue. Now, underlying this final phrase, knowing how to respond to each person, is the assumption that people around you are asking you questions, that you're getting into gospel conversations. Sometimes, perhaps, they're even asking you hostile questions. But why are they asking you questions? They're doing so because you are living in a way that is so different from the world around you that it provokes questions. The parallel is 1 Peter 3.15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. The fact that Christians have an eternal hope should be evident from your way of life. Yet you also see how here, how important it is that you can respond in a warm, charitable, and disarming way. How important it is graciousness, gentleness, and respect in the way you respond to others as you tell them about Christ. And how you'll also see the other point he makes here, how you respond to each person, responding individually to their questions and what they have asked you. Now I know as I preached this morning on this topic of evangelism, it may be one that makes many of you uncomfortable. Perhaps you say, I don't have the gift of evangelism. This isn't my strong suit. I'm not a natural speaker. I'm not gifted in argumentation. I don't feel comfortable sharing with others. That's why I think it's so important to see the pattern that we have laid out here. This starts with prayer. It starts with a humble dependence on God because it's true that you don't have the power in yourself. You don't have the confidence in yourself. But God's word does have power. And God works powerfully through the prayers of his people. And God will equip you and he will use you as you humbly go to him in prayer. And he will grow you in confidence as you seek his face in prayer. And then it begins in your lifestyle and in your speech patterns. As you are growing in Christ, as you are putting off the old man, putting on the new, people will notice the difference. You don't need to be elegant in your speech. You don't need to have all the answers memorized. But you can sincerely speak to anyone about how Christ has worked in your life about how you now have an eternal hope. Sincerely share from your heart about what the Lord has done, what he is continuing to do in your life. And the Lord will use you as his ambassador. His word is powerful, and ultimately it is the Holy Spirit who works to change the heart of those whom he is calling to himself. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning do pray for opportunities. When they come your way, make the most of them. Trust that it is the Lord who will, give you the who will give you the words to say. And it is he who will use you as his instrument to tell others about the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. May we always be filled with gratitude as we meditate on all that he has done for us. And may we be watchful and alert and have a profound sense of how deeply others need this good news. And so, have an urgency and a love for others that gives us that urgency to want to tell them about Jesus. Lord, we know that we don't do this in our own strength, in our own confidence, but we do pray that you would so fill us with that love and that urgency that we would make the most of the opportunities. We pray, Lord, that you would be opening doors in the lives of all those here. And we pray, Lord, that you would be working in the hearts of those whom we know and love. You know the different friends and family that the people here this morning have been praying for. And Lord, we do pray that you would be working, drawing men and women to yourself. And that if it be your will, you would use us as your instruments to share this good news uh, for the salvation of sinners. Prepare us now as we come to your table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.